This episode is dedicated to Tom Keeley, who donated to our crowdfund because he felt it was important for progressives to have the conversations we've been having on Open Country. We're now over halfway to our £1,000 fundraising goal. If you would like to help us get to a grand, click the link to our crowdpack page on the show notes and donate. If you want to help Open Country without spending money, leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Back to Brexit this week. Yesterday, Jeremy Corbyn announced that Labour support a customs union with the EU once Britain leaves, sidestepping the meaninglessness of negotiating our own trade deals and avoiding a hard border with Ireland. Until my conversation with today's guest, I hadn't fully appreciated just how fundamental Ireland is to Brexit. Matthew O'Toole worked for both David Cameron and Theresa May as a senior press officer. As someone comfortable with his complicated Irish identity, Matthew tried to persuade both Prime Ministers to engage more with Ireland, but with little success. Whereas Cameron wanted to keep the Remain campaign focused on facts and figures, May was more interested in internal Tory politics. As Matthew points out, Ireland has always frustrated the Conservatives' vision of Britain as a peaceful, wholly sovereign state that can do whatever it likes on the world stage. It's easy for them to forget our dark history and complex relationship with our immediate neighbour and former colony. What is your favourite word? My favourite word? That's a good question. Let's say... Let's say context. Context, that's, that's a nice one. Uh, favourite book? My favourite book is called The Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole. Is, uh, it's a picaresque novel set in New Orleans. It's a very strange comic novel. Not necessarily, Aaron, completely linked to the, the themes of your podcast, but it's a, it's a wonderful comic novel set in the deep south of the United States in 1960s. And I would urge anyone who's listening to distract themselves from the awfulness of current of uh, political life now by reading it. It's called The Confederacy of Dunces. And actually, what is relevant, what might be more relevant is the title is derived from a quote by Jonathan Swift, who is an Anglo-Irish literary figure and dean of Dublin Cathedral, who said, when a true genius appears in the world, you will know him by one sign, which is that the Dunces are all in confederacy against him. And it's about a, um, a strange and eccentric man who's rebelling against the world in which he finds himself. It's very good. Favourite film? Uh, my favourite film is probably actually um, a Coen Brothers film named um, Miller's Crossing. Oh, I love Miller's Crossing. It's, I mean, I'm a massive like Gabriel Byrne and Arby Finney fan, so like the two combined, it's. Well, it's either yeah, my, my favourite film I would say is either that or or, or the Big Lebowski. Um, I'm a big Coen Brothers fan. They're wonderful. Which fictional character do you most identify with? Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure. I, which fictional character I most identify with? Very good question. Um, um, maybe Philip. You know, maybe one of the versions of Philip Roth that he write that he that he. Um, uh, and, and the reason I say that is, like you know, he, Philip Roth writes these books about. I don't know if you ever read Philip Roth books, but he he writes um, quite often. His books involve near alter egos of himself, and they're kind of about you know. How he, sort of complicated reality is and actually that feels increasingly relevant nowadays so it's 
feels like you're as an alter ego and it's quite difficult to you feel like you're living as an alter ego of yourself and reality is very complicated so that's a quite a complicated answer who is your real life role model and my real life role model is probably or probably both my parents actually just you know they're both very decent people and, and there's no point in trying to look for someone in, in, in politics or culture whenever your family's good enough so yeah I mean the at least three people have chosen either their grandparents or parents, which I think is a better answer than you know Thatcher or... After 2016, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future? Optimistic in the sense that I'm, I think, a generally optimistic person, so I'm not sure it's to do with the actual events of 2016 so much as my... I generally prefer to be optimistic rather than pessimistic. That might not be borne out by uh, actual reality or events. Uh, of all the people you know, whose minds would you most like to change? About anything Any- in particular? Anything. I would... I mean, probably Paul Ryan's would be quite good for the, you know, for the, the future world. of the world. Yeah. So maybe Paul Ryan's about the the, the risk-reward in, in terms of opposing... Um, the president. When was the last time you changed your mind? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I've probably changed my mind a bit on Brexit, not on the central question, but whether Brexit's a good or bad thing, but on on the response to it. I think I thought for a while that a second referendum was a bad idea even though I thought Brexit was a bad idea and now I'm not so sure hmm. I'm not sure it's the right thing but I think it probably changed my mind into thinking it's, it's it's something that is more practical and can be countenanced What other career would you like to do to try and make the world the best place? I mean doing something that actually helps people like be you know um, teaching probably or doing something that's actually a bit more practical than you know sort of writing and being involved in the sort of political world so maybe you know, something a bit more practical like like you know like teaching but I don't have a I don't have a particular burning desire to change careers so I'm not sure I could answer that question honestly so to sort of get into it I'll start with this question because I think it's important to what comes later which is how did you how did you end up working for David Cameron and how did your background inform your role so I was a civil servant, first of all, it's important to say. I wasn't a, a, like a, a political party appointee. I um, was a journalist initially. I worked for a company that published political magazines. I then joined the civil service. I worked for a number of years at the Treasury doing economic communications. I left government briefly, but then went back into Downing Street about a year before the referendum. The reason I went back in was uh, into government and went to work in Downing Street was Basically, because it was a good opportunity, and I thought it would be an inter- it would be an interesting, an interesting time to do it. So it was kind of relatively, if I'm honest, self interested in career terms, mm. and I thought it would be a, you know, a fascinating time to be in government, to be to be back in this in in, in the central government, and, and and that's why I did it. I think the I mean the experience so happened to coincide with this extremely tumultuous momentous time in British politics which was the EU referendum and I happened to be working right at the centre of that that turned out to be not something that I didn't anticipate being completely the centre of that mm. at the time I, and I suppose you know the uniqueness of my situation in Downing Street at the time was my background the fact that I was from Northern Ireland and had a particular viewpoint on the consequences of Brexit so that wasn't planned or anticipated but it was a pretty fascinating time 
Since the referendum, I've become really interested in the debate about whether cold, hard facts or emotionally engaging stories are the best way to change people's minds. You've written that during the campaign, uh, Mr. Cameron and your colleagues were reluctant to engage with issues that weren't to do with sort of cold, hard financial facts, uh, sort of issues like Ireland. The only prominent politician that I saw tell a sort of inspiring story uh, about our British identity and our European identity was Gordon Brown, and that was sort of quite late, you know, in the day. Would you agree that sort of Mr. Cameron was seemed reluctant to tell a more engaging story about our EU membership? And what kind of facts or stories did you use to try and persuade him to engage more with the Irish issue? Well, I mean, I think it's true that it wasn't just David Cameron. I think the, there was a viewpoint among most of the people who, who kind of ran the campaign that the way to win the referendum was to focus people's view quite narrowly on the possibility of economic loss um, and the economic risk involved in voting to leave the European Union. So while I can say no, I, I disagree. You know, I, I think that while while I think that more should have been done to tell a more positive story, it's also worth saying that based on a kind of rational analysis at the time, mm. that wasn't a mad thing to do. Um, there wasn't a widespread tradition of pro-Europeanism running through British society, certainly English society specifically, and it was always going to be it would have been a challenge to invent that at very short notice from a standing start. Though you can criticise generations of politicians, particularly conservative politicians, and particularly the newspapers that supported them for creating an over like a kind of like vociferous and mostly inaccurate narrative about like this evil European project being inflicted on British people. So that being said, yes, I think they should have done more to, to tell a positive story about the purpose of Britain's membership of the European Union. To answer your question about why, you know, when I was in Downing Street, what was I saying to, to kind of convince people to do more? I suppose what I was saying to everyone in Downing Street was actually about the complexity of the relationship with the whole island of Ireland, which is so there is an island called Ireland. There's also an EU member state called Ireland. They're not quite the same thing. And that is at the core of the complexity because part of the island of Ireland remains in the United Kingdom. And the positive story to tell about Britain's membership of the European Union was that the most complex and important relationship Britain has with any other country is with Ireland. And the European Union has helped Britain repair and construct a really a much more positive relationship with that island than had been the case in the past. And that was completely bound up in its, in its in common European Union membership. And that was the positive story that should have been told. The positive story should have been, actually, our most important special relationship is with the island immediately next door. If we undermine, you know, if we drag ourselves out of Europe, then we're going to threaten that partnership. So that was the positive story, I think, that should have been told. Though, even saying that, you know, there's a kind of, when you're telling people not to do something, like not to leave the European Union, there has to be a kind of, you know, sort of implicit in that is a warning about is a warning and a kind of you know something negative will happen the counterfactual is is bad but i think that's the story that i i wish we the people have been have been telling for much longer in a long piece you wrote last october you said that you felt that leaves victory was england asserting its identity without any real regard for other national identities in the uk 
what alienated me from the Conservatives in the sort of 10 months of what I call made madness, sort of between her becoming Prime Minister and the general election, it sort of seemed to me that the Prime Minister was indulging in what I felt was sort of chauvinistic identity politics. Sort of things like the Citizens of Nowhere speech sort of really made me uncomfortable continuing as a Tory member. But that was my impression on the outside looking in. How did you feel inside number 10 about those issues? Well, I mean, I didn't, you know, at a personal level, you know, I didn't, I wasn't sympathetic to them politically, obviously. I mean, I was a civil servant. I think yeah. if you're a civil servant, you, you know, you leave, you, you do your best to leave your own personal political preferences at the door. And that's, and that's a really important part of it. So you know, it would be wrong for me to turn around now and complain about, um, you know, feeling alienated in my, in my day job then, because that's obviously the whole purpose of, um, of being a civil servant is that you're impartial and you serve the prime minister of the day. That being said, speaking personally, um, I you know I think there was a, you know I I didn't agree with the the approach to communicating the government's Brexit policy, um, even though I was intimately involved in it. <laughs> there is a sense that, um, and I do think as I, as I sort of wrote, as well, I mean, there's part of the the, the challenge of the of of Brexit and Brexit and the and UK constructing a, a kind of rational Brexit policy is that there was something very English about the, the, the Brexit vote. Eighty five percent of the population of the United Kingdom is English, so that's kind of a, a, a risk baked into the having a, a union of nations that is completely dominated statistically by one nation. But I think that it makes it incumbent when you've got in that situation, it makes it incumbent that and whenever you are Theresa May and you're talking constantly about the importance of the Union, that you need to understand that the United Kingdom is not necessarily a unitary state in the same way actually that France is. It's um, it has you know it's a union of different nations in a sense. It's the most uh, you know and it's unique in in the European Union in that regard. I mean, we're talking in the middle of the Six Nations tournament. You know, France and Italy. Are, are both EU member states, but they're playing five different or four different uh, countries that come from the UK. One of which also it is also an EU member state separate. You know, so Ireland is is a team that's fielded from both the UK and the EU. If you like, or post I'm kind of gets to the complexity of what the United Kingdom is. is what I'm trying to say. The United Kingdom is not a unitary state and since the devolution settlement of the the Labour government. It's increasingly been a, there's been a sort of variable geometry of political systems and political cultures and identities. And you, you, I don't think you can run this country assuming that it's the greater England of the Victorian period. And, and unfortunately, you know, there's a sense in which certain parts of the Tory party would like to do that. I mean, I, as I've said, I initially came to remain from a sort of foreign policy, policy perspective and what sort of annoyed me about the Leavers was the their idea of the world was very much Britain should focus on its own national interests and pursue them ruthlessly. And the EU was frustrating that because you know, Boris Johnson wrote an article saying that the, the EU was sort of actively frustrating Britain's interests. And then as we got to the end of last year and sort of I was amazed by the shock and anger of Brexiteers who had Ireland, the, the state, ruthlessly pursuing its interests as a nation state. 
and leveraging its alliances in the EU to achieve those interests. And the shock that they had that they that that they suddenly are in the realist world that they wanted, basically. And the shock that sort of Ireland isn't conforming to the the British national interest as though you know, and then you have people like Dan you know, Dan Hanan sort of saying, Why doesn't Ireland just leave as well? And and then we can sort it out between us. There's sort of arrogant chauvinism of that attitude. I think that's true. There's been a so what you've just described underlines exactly what I was getting at before, which is the way in which common EU membership help resolve or deal with one of, you know, Brit, not one of Britain's most complicated relationship, which is with Ireland, both the state of Ireland and the island of Ireland. Mm. So that relationship is is necessary, it's historically complex, not just because of Northern Ireland, uh, but Northern Ireland is extricably linked from it. And I think... You know, so, for example, when Britain and I were both members of the European Union, the fact that they were bound by treaty to sincere cooperation, uh, concert in terms of trade and economic policy, you know, the ministers met or meeting constantly in the council and that officials are working together both inside the commission and in their various delegations. And that kind of creates a context of partnership and working together and quality of European Union member states that blurs over the fact that one of those countries used to be, certainly in the eyes of lots of you know, lots of people in, in Ireland, used to be effectively a, a colony or a kind of an imperial possession that fought a bloody battle for independence or for independence of most of the island. That's not an easy history to deal with really, actually. And and I think there's a sort of, for, for lots of people in Ireland, in, in the Dublin political establishment, down to just, you know, people, journalists, whoever, there's a sort of sense in which they felt that a huge amount of progress had been made, you know, diplomatically, psychologically, uh, in terms of dealing with and processing this extremely complicated relationship, which included, and Northern Ireland was a sort of enormous part of that, how you kind of have joint stewardship over Northern Ireland. But for lots of people, particularly, I'm afraid to say, lots of Tories, they never quite gone on that journey and thought through how that worked and how that, you know, why that was so sensitive and why that was so important. They weren't necessarily actively hostile to the Republic of Ireland, but they weren't actively hostile because they weren't really thinking about them that much. And because mm. um, as soon as Brexit illustrated to them that their interests might diverge and that Ireland is now actually a separate independent EU member state that can't be, that, that might find, that might be, you know, willing to exert, as you say, its own national interest that they find that very frustrating. And I think the reaction in Dublin has been kind of it's been a degree of sort of anger and amazement that old what they would see as old troops of sort of, you know, being superior and are kind of in London of sort of people have been frustrated again by that. But oddly you probably also could argue that the willingness to, to see that in English politicians, particularly Tory politicians, the willingness to be offended by Tory politicians, the willingness, you know, it's reawakened the willingness and the ease with which Tory politicians are able to be insensitive about Ireland and the willingness of people in Ireland to be offended and to and to see the... So, you know, it's just a perfect example of, of why Brexit undermined... Lots of those things were smoothed over. And once you get to Northern Ireland, you get to how unbelievably complex it is because what Northern Ireland is... And this is what we're right at the heart of it. This is why Northern Ireland is right at the heart of the Brexit challenge. So one of the arguments that Tory Eurosceptics make consistently is that the European project didn't really apply to Britain. Britain's different. 
Britain didn't tear itself apart during the Second World War. Britain didn't allow itself to be taken over by fascists. Britain didn't have an occupying army in its land and all that. And, 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 and you know, Britain doesn't have uh, sort of, you know, Britain doesn't have a Strasbourg. It doesn't have an air, you know, a sort of a place of dual and complicated conflict. Except that's wrong. It does. That's Northern Ireland. Yeah. That's why it's wrong. So Northern Ireland gives basically the, the entire Tory analysis of the United Kingdom's relationship with the European Union falls down on the island of Ireland. And that was true before the ref. It was true 40 years ago and it's true now. Britain does have a European conflict that the European Union helped settle and it's Northern Ireland. They might not be, they might not understand how, but they're getting to understand now because the other party in that dispute, i.e. the Republic of Ireland, is saying, actually, this is complicating our ability to be, to jointly steward this peace process. This is complicating a set of relationships that was very, that was already very complex, but we had released, reached a kind of equilibrium. I don't know if you'd agree, but for me, uh, for me personally, I've always been interested in sort of modern Irish history ever since. I think one of the earliest films I can remember seeing was uh, Michael Collins. Yeah. So ever since then, I've been quite interested. But for a lot of people, it kind of seems like um, Ireland is Northern Ireland. And there was some trouble in Northern Ireland. And it's kind of something we have to like occasionally sort out. But there's a complete ignorance about the fact that we used to be imperial occupiers and we sort of, you know, committed crimes there. And it's as if we've sort of completely forgotten all that. And sort of, again, like the Brexiteers, react surprised that the people in Ireland would be offended by some of the things we say. I mean, you, you know, mm. there's probably yeah. an argument that Britain would be a happier place if the Tory party in Ireland had never met. Um, yeah, that's, that's, I mean, you could, you could also argue that, you know, Europe in many ways replaced Ireland as the perennial difficult issue mm. for governments in the UK, particularly conservative governments. Mm. If you need an issue, an external issue, which, well, an internal issue it was until 1920 and then an internal issue in, in the relation to Northern Ireland for a moment. Well, it wasn't really from 1920 to 1969, but um, Northern Ireland, but um, you're right that the the complexity of identity and history on the island of Ireland has always presented a challenge to the Tory party's view of the United Kingdom and it being a kind of sort of unified imperial power. And weirdly, that tension, which seems, you know, to describe it now, it seems like you're, you're talking about the late Victorian period, but actually precisely the same thing is happening again. Britain's relationship with the island of Ireland is preventing it from, or is you know, negating its ability to be a unified, you know, neo-imperial power on the world stage. In one, you could argue, I'm not, this is not necessarily exactly what I would say, but that's that's certainly a kind of an argument that people would make. I mean, um, it's, it does seem to me a lot of the rhetoric. And I, and I was just, it was just one quick thing I would say: yeah. if you think the if the alternative to that is a, a more European Britain, which is slightly more at ease with being one of the biggest countries in the European Union and, you know, a globally important and relevant state diplomatically and economically, but not a great power, um, then, which was basically the position of, I guess, the new Labour government, then it's slightly easier to have a 
a, a, a more balanced, easy relationship with uh, with Ireland, and that was why you know the successive Labour governments, and actually to be fair, Cameron as well, were able they were able to have a you know pretty productive relationship with Irish governments of different colours. I mean, whenever I get into an argument with sort of leave friends, sort of those I have left, and I sort of say leave is isolationist and, and everything like that, they they always point to the the global Britain rhetoric, and for me, it's like global Britain as a global Britain as it's defined by the Brexiteers. It's very unilateralist and sort of neo imperialist. It's sort of swashbuckling Britain sort of imposes free trade on the rest of the world in a sort of like early to mid 19th century model. Yeah, the rhetoric definitely is slightly, I don't say problematic because that sounds a bit sort of um, campus, sort of like I'm a graduate student, but global Britain doesn't really work for that many people as a, as a, as a, as a formulation. It didn't when I was in government, it tends to, lots of people who voted, when it's tested with people who voted leave, they don't like it because it sounds a bit like Globalization. It sounds a bit like there might be lots of people from other parts of the globe coming here. So that's kind of what they voted against, actually. Yeah. And as you say, for some of these other markets, it's not necessary. And some of these other markets, as in you know, potential um, trade partners post Brexit, it isn't to the extent that they would think about it. I mean, as, I said, as you said, there's a slight connotation of we're going to come and trade with you, Norway. Um, you're going to trade with us, aren't you? You're, you're, you're former, we're your former masters. You must be dying to do a a trade deal with us because India, we used to run you, and why? And, and you haven't thanked us for that, by the way. No, exactly. Yeah. Yes, and there's a lot of, and, and so there's an extreme amount of sensitivity, which which needs to go along with that. And does I mean, I think there's a, I think that's part of the. That's a lot of, so it's not official so you think that but it is there is a challenge I think and first you know a lot of the politicians who are enthused about brexit in not not sounding like brexit is an alibi for rekindling your version of the British Empire and people who want to talk about the anglosphere and you know sometimes you want to talk about kind of rebooting the Commonwealth need to probably have a long hard look at what other people in other countries actually think about those constructs and how interested they are in them I mean I've always thought you know if Joseph Chamberlain can make the Anglosphere work then no one else is going to make it work it's Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so my last question is sort of it seems to me that unfortunately for Brexiteers but especially unfortunately for Britain two separate things have become entangled. Mm-hmm. The actual act of leaving the EU and what I think is Theresa May's bad handling of it. I think sort of the, the timing of Article 50, uh, the sequence of triggering it and then calling an election, uh, accusing the EU of sort of interfering in our democracy, talking up the prospect of a no deal. For me, those weren't sort of historical inevitabilities. They were conscious decisions that the Prime Minister took that turned out to be bad decisions. Again, that is my perspective on the outside looking in. Again, you, you know, as, as you said, you were a civil servant and you're not going to turn on sort of you know, what, what you did then. But is that, do you think that is a fair assessment? I, I, I do think it's right to say, so I mean, I, yeah, I, am, I was a civil servant and I'm, um, 
I'm not, you know, sort of, it's not for me to turn around and kind of spill, you know, kind of gossip about, you know, my view on what happened when I was actually in government. That being said, I agree with you that the certain decisions that were made about the practicalities of the Brexit negotiations um, were not historical inevitabilities, but conscious choices made based on party political strategy as much as careful negotiating coordination and the belief that you could, uh, you know, it, it was party politics either in addition to or, you know, versus um, sort of negotiating planning. So, I mean, I, I agree with you. I don't think, I mean, I don't know, we don't know yet how this, how the process is going to, how the process is going to turn out. I personally happen to be, you know, a massive skeptic about Brexit. I, um, as I know, obviously you are, Aaron, it's not though, I mean, I wouldn't, I think it's guaranteed that the, if, you know, if Brexit goes ahead and the UK leaves the European Union in March next year, I think I'm fairly certain that that will be, the what happens to the UK politically and economically will be less good than what would have happened if it had remained in the European Union. That's my view. And I particularly think that based on, you know, in relation to where I come from, that's Northern Ireland mm-hmm. uh, and indeed the whole island of Ireland because I'm an Irish citizen. And I think that's part of the, you know, that's part of why I feel very strongly about it. I'm, I care about the whole island of Ireland. I also care about the whole of the United Kingdom. I think that's one of the things that, um, uh, I think that's one of the things why I feel particularly passionate about it. But while I think the outcome the, will be not great for the UK relative to what other, it's, it is still plausible that there is a, you know, a scenario where Brexit happens and the, the country doesn't fall apart and the, the economy doesn't fall off a cliff and you manage to retain a degree of, you know, trust in the democratic process. But that, as you have said in relation to the earlier choices, that requires further choices to be made by politicians, whether Theresa May or not. That requires specific choices and leadership around telling people that you are choosing to do one thing over another. Yeah. Um, you're choosing to trade off, for example, um, the ability to sign free trade deals around the world. You're trading that off in order to get continued seamless trade for the companies that already export to the European Union and want to continue doing that in a seamless and frictionless way. And to me, uh, most importantly of all, um, you're trading it off uh, in order to maintain an open border on the island of Ireland. So I think it's highly possible that for, you know, it's highly possible to command a majority in the House of Commons based on th- those two principles. The majority of people in the House of Commons want seamless trade with the European Union and they want there to be no hard border on the island of Ireland. It requires political leadership for a prime minister or for people in the cabinet to, to get behind that. Whether that's going to happen or not is a challenge. So while I don't think it's necessarily, you know, we're going to be eating rats in parks and, you know, in, in 18 months time, I do think why, I do think it will require specific choices in leadership. And as you say, the process up to now has not been one of inevitability. It's been one of specific choices. That's true for the next year as well. It's not one of inevitability. It's one of choices in leadership. I just want to thank Matthew for sparing the time to talk to me. Next week, I'll be talking to another proud Irishman, the historian John Bew. 
Again, if you have a spare fiver and want to help Open Country, then click the link to our Crowdpack page on the show notes and donate it. If you want to keep your fiver but still want to help us, rate and review us on iTunes. It does more than you may think.